Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another fine episode of the Fuel Bitter podcast. I am your host, as always, Evan Lynch. In today's episode, guys, we are going to get into all things plant-based, vegetarianism, veganism, and we're going to look at how you, as a plant-based athlete, can manage your diet a little bit better. I think before we actually get into this episode, we really need to define what do we mean when we say plant-based? Because that's an umbrella term for actually very, very different things. So let's let's go with, let's say, the, the least plant-basedness that you can be. You're someone who just does not eat animal flesh. You might eat fish. So if you are someone who eats fish and eats dairy, but just not, let's say, something like beef, chicken, turkey, etc., you're a lacto-ovo pescatarian. You eat fish, you eat dairy, you eat eggs you're not really at risk of any deficiencies here. You're, you're almost not plant-based. It's it's almost just picky eating, to be perfectly honest. In terms of protein quality, risks of calcium, vitamin D deficiencies, that doesn't really exist for you. The next level to that is you eat no animal flesh, but you're happy to eat dairy and eggs. Again, the risk profile is, it's not that high. You know, you have, still have a pretty balanced diet. Maybe we just need to make sure your protein requirements are met and maybe we need to watch your iron intake because animal flesh sources are your best sources of high amounts of bioavailable iron, which is something I'll come back to later. Let's say then that you are vegetarian. You don't eat any animal-derived products. So you're looking at soya milks, soya-based protein items, tofu, edamame, beans, chickpeas. That's where the risk level starts to climb and that is, when someone tells me they're vegetarian, that is my assumption. Most people who are vegetarian, or at least identify as vegetarian in my experience, they often have either dairy, meat, or fish. They have dairy, fish, or eggs, or some combination of those items. So when you when you start getting to the vegetarianism, as I've just described it there, no animal products or derivatives, your risk profile starts to jump up. We need to look at protein quality calcium intake, vitamin D intake, probably zinc, maybe magnesium, um, and definitely iron again. When we start to get further extreme on that plant-based, um, call it a, what's the word I'm trying to think of here? Uh, spectrum. When we get further along that plant-based spectrum, and you're say vegan, where you eat pretty much just plants and very, very little else, nothing with a hint of a of an animal kind of attachment to it. Again, the risk increases for multiple nutrient deficiencies, energy deficiencies, etc. And if you're a kind of raw plant-based vegan that you literally only eat raw things, that's that's just very challenging to manage. Most people are not that. I've come across 
very, very few true vegans. Um, however, the items I'm going to talk about today assume you are at risk for all of them and I'll show you how to minimize your risk of said deficiencies and problems. So again, learn to classify yourself. If you're ever talking to a dietitian and you say, I am vegetarian, maybe specify if you do or do not eat eggs, you do or do not eat dairy, you do or do not eat fish. That's a very important thing for us to know because it changes the whole clinical picture of what we're dealing with. So why are there so many plant-based people now? And I have to say, it's something I'm seeing more and more every year. More of my consults are tending to have a plant-based nature to them, which is great because the first reason I see people going plant-based is for environmental reasons. People are doing their part to lower their carbon footprint. And you know what? Absolutely, everyone has to get on board with that. That's one driver. Secondly, there is a plethora of research that tells us that when we eat more plants, plant-based foods, less processed items in general, that tends to have more favor favorable outcomes. You know, the Mediterranean diet, for example, is a vegetable rich diet. It's high in plant-based foods. And we know that that plummets your risk for type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, cancer, heart attacks, etc. Whilst the research base tells us, you know, eat more vegetables, eat more plants, more plant-based items, what people hear is, I should be a vegetarian. That's not actually what the research base says. It says eat more plant-based foods, not have a exclusively plant-based diet. It's still okay to eat lean protein sources, eggs, fish, and all that. If it's within your ethical reasons, <clears throat> if it's kind of within your ethical boundaries. And I suppose that, you know, that, that ethical side of things, it's something I haven't touched on. And that's, that's obviously been an ever present reason why someone would be vegetarian. I don't necessarily think more people are ethically plant-based now. I think that subset of people has always existed. The additional people falling into plant-based from what I can see come, come at it from an environmental perspective, from a health perspective, or since the uh, release of the Game Changers documentary a couple of years back there on Netflix, from a performance expect expectation perspective, and I say expectation because this has been well covered and I've, I think I've written a blog or two on this in the past, but maybe I've never spoken about it like this. The Game Changers documentary was poorly made and not very well explained and the science in it was when I put this, fear shaky, that might be the best way to put it. There's there's one scene in particular that I remember. There's a couple of athletes being interviewed and they're saying, you know, when I went plant-based, my performance just went straight up. If you actually look at the athlete's diet, they were actually sitting at a dinner table eating. It struck me. And this is this has occurred to other dietitians and researchers as well. What actually happened when these athletes went full vegan or whatever it is they did, they just ate more carbohydrates. They ate more spuds, they ate more rice, more sweet potatoes, more chickpeas, more lentils, more peas, more corn, more bread probably. And definitely more fruit like your bananas and your juices. All of those things are very high in carbohydrates. And assuming you are listening to this podcast because you've been a previous listener and if so thank you or you follow me on social media or you're interested in sports nutrition my hope is that you're already thinking oh okay I see when they increase their carb intake 
that is more so the driver of performance, not necessarily the fact that they ate more vegetables. I, as a sports dietitian, have never said to someone, look, if you're trying to smash training tonight, you need to have a head of broccoli beforehand because no sports dietitian anywhere in the world thinks that's a good idea. That would not be a good energy source for training. If you have a big bowl of vegetables before you exercise, there is a 100% chance you will shit your pants. 100% chance. If you don't believe me, you can give it a shot and let me know. Info at evanlynchfitnut.com with your, you know, <laughs> how that goes. Uh, I'm joking. Please do not um, do not email me like that. You can email me for genuine inquiries, but uh, yeah, not that. Anyways, let's let's get on to some of the risks of being plant-based. I've already alluded to some of them. If we're plant-based, one of the key things is protein, protein intake, protein quality. That is always a tricky part of managing a plant-based diet, particularly in Ireland. It's starting to get better, but the options were scarce or, you know, the Irish palate until reasonably recently wouldn't have been super diverse. So it, it's getting easier, but that's something I'm going to talk about in a minute. Plant-based athletes are more at risk of things like osteoporosis and osteopenia because generally speaking, when one goes plant-based or thinks about it, their intake of calcium-rich foods can and often does drop concurrently with their intake of vitamin D-rich foods. Those are your two main things to promote bone health. So that's really, really important and well worth the discussion. The most common deficiency that I see with plant-based people and to be fair, non-plant-based people alike is iron deficiency. The reason I'm bringing this up specifically, if you are plant-based, it's very important to understand that non-heme iron, which is the type of iron found in plant-based foods, is absorbed at rates of 2 to 20% once it's eaten versus the 15 to 35% for heme iron. So there's, there's a huge drop-off in when you eat, let's say, 8 milligrams worth of iron via spinach, you may only absorb one to two milligrams of that. Whereas if that was eight milligrams of iron from chicken or beef, you're probably going to absorb three, maybe three and a half milligrams of that. That's the difference. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it is. It is quite a lot. So iron deficiency is a big, big one, especially if you're an endurance athlete, especially if you're a teenager as well, or you're not fully cooked. So your your average human isn't really fully cooked until they're in their mid-20s. I'm 27. Some might argue I'm not exactly fully cooked yet either, but the uh, the jury is out on that one. So that's iron deficiency. Some other things people tend not to think about. You're looking at being at risk for low intakes of things like omega-3, generally only found in oily fish. If you do not eat any flesh of any description, that's going to be a problem. Again, particularly if you've been plant-based for quite a while, you might be low on omega-3s and that can mess with all types of things like your inflammatory responses, your cognitive health, cardiac risks, etc. So it's not all rosy. I hope that's the picture I've painted so far. So whilst there are far more of us being plant-based, we're an ever more health conscious world. It's important that we know that just because we've adopted the idea to eat more vegetables, we're not bulletproof and we need to be aware of where the holes are in our diet. So let me walk you through how you can avoid all of the pitfalls I've just talked about in the next 15 to 20-ish minutes. I promise that, so I'm going to try and stick to that. I don't want to don't want to keep you guys here all day. So we'll rewind. We're going to start with protein. 
protein, as most of us know, those are the building blocks for everything. If you're watching the video segments here on Spotify or on YouTube or, you know, you're hopefully watching me on my Instagram feed here, you're looking at me. This is all protein, my face, my hair, my fingernails, all protein. So if we know that on a plant-based diet, maybe the variety of protein sources, the quality of the protein sources, even just the sheer portion of protein that you get per serving, if none of that is optimized, we have to be very careful and very structured as to how we help you meet your requirements. So if you're looking at this and you're a plant-based dieter, you need to add 10, maybe 15% onto these numbers. For endurance athletes, normal requirements are 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kg of body weight. If you're a power athlete, it's 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kg of body weight. If you're plant-based, again, add 10 to 15% onto that. Think of it like a safety margin to allow for the general drop in bioavailability of plant-based proteins. So that's our number. That's the bottom of our pyramid of importance, that you eat enough. You have to get enough protein in to support muscle building. If you don't have enough ingredients full stop, you can't bake the cake, okay? Thing number two that we need to care about as pertains to protein is the type of protein. So if you want a whole plant-based protein source, soya, soya yogurt, soya milk, soy-based cheese, soya protein powders are all brilliant, as is tofu. Those are total protein sources. And what that means is it has all 20 amino acids present and it has them in reasonable amounts. And the key thing we want to get at here for all you bros listening, if you're having a meal or a snack and you're worried or you're hoping to optimize muscle mass, you need to have around two and a half to three grams of leucine or 10 grams of essential amino acids on your plate. For example, if you have a bagel, there'll be 10 grams of protein in that and it's not a complete protein source. If you have a bowl of peas, there'll be similar protein content, but you will be missing some amino acids there. If you have a soya product, job done in a similar way to job being done with something like milk, cheese, yogurt, eggs, fish, meat. And the way to think about these total protein sources is, imagine I was trying to build a house God forbid in this climate, but imagine I wanted to give it a go and I showed up to build a wall and I came with cement, but no sand or stones, but no cement mixer. I only have some of the ingredients. The wall can't be built. That's what it's basically happening in your body. If you're not getting total protein sources at a meal, you cannot launch a muscle synthetic response, at least an appropriate one or an effective one. So that's important. If you're trying to get your complementary plant-based protein sources in, you're looking at combining rice and grains, peas and corn is another good one, um, rice and beans is another way to do that. If you want a general heuristic to follow, Mexican food, burritos, enchiladas, wraps, all that type of thing. It'll have mixed beans, it may have some cheese of some description, it'll probably have lentils there as well and some rice. We have our legumes, our rice, our peas, our beans, our corn. You generally just want two or three different protein sources on your plate or your soya product. If you do that, box ticked, total protein source on your plate. You, my friend, are now doing muscle protein synthesis like an omnivorous person. So that's an easy enough one to take off. 
And that's the second rung on our ladder of hierarchical importance as it comes to protein. The third thing is that you eat reasonably frequently. So this has nothing to do with plant-based diets, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that people who I see who tend to do things like intermittent fasting or, you know, they'll, they'll just have big gaps between meals also tend to try different dietary modalities like plant-based, Atkins, paleo, whatever it might be. <clears throat> the reason it's important for you to get frequent protein hits throughout the day is every time you get a hit and you satisfy the requirements I've already described, you have enough amino acids on the plate, you have your leucine threshold hit, you get this spike in muscle protein synthesis. It's transient. It only lasts for about an hour or two. So imagine if you eat once a day, you hit all your calories and your macros in one meal. Good for you. How efficient are you? Well done. You have loads of time to work, but you've only gotten one little spike of muscle protein synthesis. If you can take the time to have four or five meals during the day, and this is important for athletes, if you can space those out and you can have five times the muscle protein synthetic building time versus just eating one meal alone, literally what that means is you recover better. You're building more muscle tissue. Your your rate of recovery is going to be much, much higher. So that's one of the many reasons that a heuristic I would give to an athlete, plant-based or omnivorous, is avoid leaving long gaps between meals. It's very simple. It's very boring, unsexy advice, but God damn it, it's, it's fucking true. You got to get your frequent intakes in, okay? That's the third rung of our ladder. You don't want to have big gaps between your meals. The top rung, it's it's really not that important. It's timing after exercise. I'm just putting it in here to complete the segment, if you will. Timing after exercise of protein is not that important. If you eat enough, the types are good and you don't really leave more than three, maximum four hours between meals. Whether or not you have your soya protein shake after training is highly inconsequential. Just have your carbs, okay? Though recovery is not the topic of today's discussion, I just felt that was an important um, stipulation to stick in there. So that's protein. It's very possible for an athlete to have perfect recovery, perfect protein intakes, build muscle even. There's there's a couple of plant-based bodybuilders and as long as you do it correctly, it's fine. It's not suboptimal. It's just harder to do, or at least you have to pay more attention to what you're doing. Just one thing I'm going to mention here, because it is important, but it's not technically a protein, though people think it is. Creatine. If you're plant-based, you definitely need to be taking creatine. Oh, the really only appreciable creatine source in diets is beef and steak. If you eat neither of those things, you're at a distinct disadvantage, particularly if you're an athlete and a strength or power athlete at that. You need to get your creatine in. So if you're a plant-based athlete, creatine, five grams a day, Creatine is very safe, provided you have no underlying renal abnormalities or kidney conditions. You can crack away five grams a day. Do it. That's important. And that can help you with your conquest in building all the muscles that you want to build. So I'm going to park muscles for now and I'm going to move on to something similar but slightly different. Bones. Bones are very important. People think that um, bones are just structural. They are not. Your bones do loads of things. They are obviously, they're structural. But did you know that that's where your red blood cells and your white blood cells are made in your bone marrow? And 
decreasing bone mineral density can have a negative impact on that. And furthermore, some of the risks of a plant-based diet, i.e. iron deficiency, i.e. inadequate zinc intakes or total calorie intakes resulting in testosterone deficiency can impact bone health negatively. The number one way that you can crush your bone health is by not eating enough carbs and calories, which that's not exclusive to plant-based diet, so I'm not going to talk about that. But not getting enough calcium and vitamin D in your diet, that's really important. You need to have approximately 700 milligrams of calcium in your diet. Unless you are a child, your, your requirements are higher. If you have hypothyroidism, your requirements are about 1,000 megs a day. If you have a stress fracture or you're someone who has amenorrhea, your calcium requirements can be 1,500 milligrams a day. So it's very situational, but those are the general numbers off the top of my head. A normal portion of dairy is about 200, 300 megs, depending on what exactly you're eating. For plant-based people, if you have the wherewithal and you can eat dairy, I would encourage you to get three servings a day, fortified dairy. That's your easiest way for you to meet your calcium requirements. If you don't eat dairy, I would encourage you to do the same thing with soya. Soya is the gold standard replacement for dairy and in lactose intolerant kids, we advise soya products where possible, if possible. So they're they're almost a direct replacement, okay? As long as it's fortified. The reason for the fortification, particularly if you are young or you're not fully cooked yet, is the fortified soya items have iodine in them. Iodine is very, very important for cognitive development and it's really only found in dairy and fish unless you have a fortified item there. So that's that's an important side note. I actually wasn't going to touch on that as a topic in of itself because it's not really related to sports, but there you go. Little uh, extra tidbit in there for you. You need to get your iodine in. So fortified soya if you're plant-based, if you're pescatarian, white fish twice a week. If you're someone who consumes dairy, get your dairy in and don't worry about it. Job very much done. So coming back to bone health then, not meeting your calcium or vitamin D requirements is a very effective way for your bone mineral density to just plummet. And a horrifying statistic I heard, if you have osteoporosis, I think, and you're elderly, so you're 60 plus and you fall, you're four times more likely to die. That's a true statistic that I heard a researcher say before. And, you know, we tend not to think that far ahead. Like I'm I'm looking at you in the camera here and I'm 27. It'd be very easy for me to think if I eat chocolate today and I don't get my five a day, nothing will happen yet. And it's that that's the bit we never think about. But I'm here to help you avoid problems. So let's assume that it's extremely pertinent now and forever that you meet your calcium and vitamin D requirements. And vitamin D requirements vary from 5 to 10 micrograms a day. Though athletes are considered to need considerably more than that. And I've seen some research say athletes need 1500 IU, so 2000 IU of vitamin D per day. The thing to do, get your blood work checked. There is no reliable blood test for calcium levels. It just, it doesn't exist. If you get your calcium levels checked, that's about 1% of your body's calcium store found in serum plasma. That's not a reliable reflection of your calcium intake. If your calcium intake is too low, what can happen is your bones just start to demineralize. So maybe you get checked for osteocalcin levels um, to, see, to see what is happening there. 
with vitamin D, vitamin D is reliably checked via blood test. Athletes have a higher cutoff. So the, the threshold that's recommended for athletes is 75. Um, I never remember if it's nanomoles or micrograms, but 75 units of whatever they check it in. I don't, I don't need to know that, lads. Neither do you, really, if you get your blood work. You're looking at 75. 50 is the normal cutoff point in standard populations. So that's really important to know. And I often see it that this kind of thing is missed because to be fair, most people are not dietitians and most people are definitely not experts in sports nutrition. I'm not claiming to be an expert. I just tend to know more than most people about this topic. So take it from me. If you're an athlete and an athlete is someone who exercises frequently on purpose, that's a loose definition, your vitamin D needs to be 75 plus. Okay. So in that case, you might need a supplement. That's, that's why I'm saying that. If you can make sure your calcium is met, get your vitamin D in, job done. So practically, if you don't consume dairy or soya and you are not someone who eats oily fish, which is a great source of vitamin D, here's how you can meet your calcium requirements. Tofu, sesame seeds, spinach, orange juice, all very high in calcium. Fortified cereal, very, very high in calcium and vitamin D. From a vitamin D perspective, then, to be honest, you're probably looking at supplementation unless you're willing to take a fortified product. That's that's really your only option. Get sunlight, obviously. Um, I'm not going to advise anyone to go outside and not wear sun cream, but there is plenty of research to suggest that sun cream usage inhibits your ability to absorb vitamin D. Deal with that information what you will. My advice is check your levels, supplement accordingly, see if there are fortified items you can get and happily consume. Cereals and milks are a good place to start and that's generally you covered. So that's bones. Next, I want to talk about omega-3 and this is something that pops up an awful lot and omega-3 is part of the health picture, more so for cardiometabolic things like uh, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, liver fat levels, triglyceride management. Omega-3s are generally a stalwart of how we help treat those things. Having a high intake of omega-3 is generally associated with lower risks of certain things like that, cognitive or neurocognitive decline. And as you, again, as you develop and mature, not having enough omega-3 can negatively impact that. How omega-3 works, it's, it's converted in your body into a chysopentanoic and dicoisahexanoic acid. Those are the bioactive items. Um, and that has a direct impact on how your body has uh, or exerts inflammatory responses. So if you don't get enough omega-3, it's a reasonable deposit that you may have inappropriate inflammatory responses. So there's some research that looks at this into allergies, asthma, things like that. I'm not going to comment on it today. Number one, it's kind of outside of my lane of expertise. And number two, it's not the topic of today's conversation. I know I can hear some of you already thinking, but Evan, chia seeds are high in omega-3s. You would be correct. However, the omega-3s found in chia seeds and flax seeds, it's alpha-linoleic acid, which is the least bioactive form of your omega-3 fatty acid. It has a 15% conversion rate from ALA to your bioactive items, which is where the real cheese is. So if you are not a pescatarian and you don't have the capacity to consume 
oily fish twice a week and you don't eat eggs, you can get omega-3 enriched eggs. That's an option for you. Do that or both of those items I mentioned. If you're not happy to do either of those things, fret not. You can get algae or lichen-based omega-3s that are high in eicosapentaenoic and eicosahexaenoic acid. So if your dietary restrictions prohibit you from consuming those naturally high omega-3 sources, get one of those supplements. Job done. Box closed. Just make it a part of your daily life. You can thank me when you're 70. That's omega-3s. The next item I want to talk about is zinc. So zinc is something that we find in meat. We find it in fish. We find it in eggs. And zinc has a big role to play in, for men for the most part, that I'm, I'm talking about in this context, testosterone management and reproductive health or fertility. So zinc deficiencies are known to lead or at least be part of the picture of someone having low testosterone levels and also poor sperm quality. So if you're trying to conceive, you need to really listen here. And unless you're taking a multivitamin that covers your zinc requirements, you need to make sure that you're getting your, your zinc in. So if you want to make sure your zinc requirements are met and you, you're obviously plant-based, your best bet is to start with something like pumpkin seeds and then opting for various types of mixed nuts, so walnuts and cashews in particular. And you will also find zinc in some of your mixed types of beans. So that's that's really important to do. Pumpkin seeds is the big one. If it's if it's something that you feel as though, you know, you're having some libido issues or you feel that, you know, you might be trying to have a child soon and you are male, maybe it's worth getting a supplement to cover your requirements. That would be important. Just, I suppose, a PSA. One of the key things for, for lads, if you do see drops in your libido levels, you know, that erectile strength, frequency, sex drive, if that's kind of changing, you probably do need to take a look at your diet, make sure you're getting your seleniums, your zincs, etc. to ensure that it's not a contributory factor. And just while I'm on that, if you want to cover your selenium requirements, two to three Brazil nuts a day will do the job. And again, I only spoke about this this morning with someone, selenium intakes and supplementation are a huge, huge factor in, let's say, if you're trying to conceive, you're looking at sperm quality, vitality, motility, etc., and the morphology as well, all of which increases or decreases the risk that you're going to have a, a child successfully. So if that's something that's on your mind, you need to get those boxes squared away. Brass tacks, mixed nuts, seeds, beans, pulses, job done. Multivitamin if you're a very picky eater and plant-based which would be a very unfortunate place to be. The last thing I'm going to talk about today, and this is purely for sports, it's a consideration for athletes. Generally, eating more fibre is considered a good thing, and I would 100% agree, more fibre is very, very beneficial. Better blood sugar control, better satiety, better gut health, much better gut health, not being constipated, it's, it's great. With athletes, very high fiber diets or plant-based diets are considered to be a risk factor for REDS. When you have a high fiber intake, 50 grams a day or more, that actually mildly inhibits your ability to absorb calories. So that's something to consider. If you're plant-based and you are 
you know, having all the hallmark symptoms of reds, the libido drops, the menstrual abnormalities, sleeping difficulties. Maybe you're someone who gets injured a lot or you have your stress fractures, you have frequent infections, or maybe you have iron deficiency, or you're just not performing well and you have some of those things. Maybe, and I don't say this lightly, it could be that you're too healthy. Your diet could be too kind of traditionally healthy and that high, high fiber intake is actually inhibiting your capacity to absorb adequate nutrients and calories in your intestinal tract and by virtue of the fact that you are just very full all the time and unable to meet your requirements. So again, one of the the nuances here, plant-based diets generally very, very healthy. From a performance perspective, good for you if you also have a high carb intake and can meet your requirements Lots of the problems with reds come in when people go plant-based and they just eat green vegetables and fruit. And then they're like, I don't know why you have no energy, but you calculate your energy intake and it's like 800 calories a day. It's like, I mean, it's not exactly a surprise. You're, you're basically exhibiting all the signs of malnutrition here. You're eating enough for a two-year-old in terms of calorie intake. Before I finish up today, the last thing I want to talk about is iron. It is by far the most common nutrient deficiency in the world, actually, and it's just more common in plant-based athletes. The reason being is that there are different types of iron. There's heme and non-heme. Heme iron is found in meat, chicken, eggs, that kind of thing, animal-derived proteins, basically. Non-heme iron is that that you will find in some nuts, some tofu, some spinach, some broccoli, and whole grains, actually. You'll find iron in whole grains difference between heme and non-heme iron is how much you absorb. So here's the thing, this kind of messes with people's head. You are not what you eat, you are what you absorb. And when we're looking at the absorption rates of heme iron, it's 15 to 35%. So if you eat 10 milligrams of heme iron, you'd absorb 1.5 to 3.5 milligrams of that, depending on your underlying iron status and how much vitamin C was on the meal itself. Did you have any other antagonistic minerals like zinc, magnesium, calcium? Did you have tea or coffee recently? Do you take antacids? Do you take proton pump inhibitor medication? Do you have poorly controlled celiac disease? All of those things will impact your ability to absorb iron. We then look at non-heme iron, which is the items found in plant-based foods, as I've just said. The absorption rate there is 2 to 20%. That's significantly lower. And if we look at the iron requirements, for men, it's about eight milligrams a day. For adult ladies, it's 14.8 milligrams per day. It's recommended for people who are fully plant-based, i.e. no meat, no fish, no eggs. You multiply that number by 2.2 and that's your actual iron requirements. That's the number you have to hit to absorb the amount you need to support biological functioning. And if you are plant-based, and this is a good idea anyway, but get a blood test, check your ferritin count. If your ferritin is below 35 for non-athletes, that's iron deficiency anemia. That's where we would start to supplement. You don't supplement before that. There's a very good reason for that and I'm going to explain. In Ireland, there's approximately a 3% rate of hemochromatosis. It's a genetic condition whereby you can't kind of uh, recycle or process iron effectively and you have to do kind of venesections to basically leave off some blood every now and then to lower your iron count keep track of it. That's 3% of the population. Many, many more are carriers. People sometimes find out they have hemochromatosis 
after supplementing with iron, then they get huge liver damage or other problems of a similar nature. So we never supplement prophylactically with iron. If you think you might be low, and the classic symptoms are pale conjunctiva, maybe thinning hair, brittle nails, you look very pale or vampire-like, or you're just bollocks. I mean, iron is iron deficiency is going to make you pretty tired. If you feel any and all of those things, go to your doc, get your bloods done, check your iron count, check your B vitamin levels. That's that's pretty important. And again, that's actually very important for plant-based people that you get your B vitamins too. So again, your fortified milks and cereals, your nutritional yeast is a great source of B vitamins. You'll pick up B vitamins and some nuts, seeds and grains also. Um, and vitids, actually, a very good way to get your B vitamins in. But I'm I'm digressing. If you're worried that you're iron deficient, you need to do your blood work and check that and then supplement, not supplement just to prevent the problem in the first place. That's actually not effective. We we don't we don't see performance benefits when you take iron prophylactically. So with with iron then, if if it is a case that you know you're worried you're not meeting your requirements, my advice is whole grain breads, whole grain everything, whole grain flour as well, quite high in iron, fortified cereals, high intakes of vitamin C probably limit your intake of tea and coffee. Those are big ones for inhibiting your capacity to absorb iron. Things like cashew nuts, dark chocolate, leafy greens, broccoli, tofu, those are pretty high in iron as plant-based foods go. But if you do want some help with that, that's that's something that can benefit greatly from dietetic oversight. But it's just a consideration to make and it's a reason amongst many to get a blood test on annually or biannually, especially if you're physically active the ferritin or your body's iron store, the backup store, that drops asymptomatically all the way down to full-blown anemia. If you allow it to get that low, that's a three-month recovery time where you're not able to exercise at a high intensity or you feel tired a lot. So for the sake of getting a little blood test done, maybe you can avoid such an outcome and you're not going to have to miss the summer of racing or you're not going to have to miss a whole block of pre-season training. So that's, that's really, really important. And... You know, some people might not appreciate me clinically poking plant-based diets because, you know, more fruit and vegetables is the holy grail of dietetic advice. Do more of that. Generally, everything works out. There's always nuance. There's always context. So if if you are plant-based, I hope that this episode has been informative or useful, and pardon the pun, but very much food for thought. I really hope so. If this is something that you think you might need help with or if any of the things I said today kind of resonate with you and you're thinking, oh God, you know, I'm not, you know, I I don't think my diet is great or I don't eat these things, please get in touch um, and we'll be able to help you out. If you do want to work with the team here, I have a massively, massively, massively impressive team of coaches working with me. And they've been helping people just like you manage problems like the ones I've mentioned today. So, guys, thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, tell a friend, tell your family, tell your dog. I don't care. Just tell someone and tell them it's brilliant. Give it an old share and I will be back online again soon with another episode.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.